This morning, I want to invite you to turn to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 5. And I want you to think about uh, this morning the use of questions and the importance of questions. Someone once said, one good question is worth a dozen answers. As you know, Jesus was the master of the question, uh, often making effective and varied use of the question. His famous uh, eschatological discourse began with a question in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel, we've seen this in our series in Matthew, Jesus included several sets of questions to drive home a point, to challenge the hearts of his hearers or to stir them to action. Uh, These may be familiar to you. Jesus said, "Is, is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Or he said at one point, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? This one we actually came up at our, at our marriage, marriage retreat. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Even last week, Shane preached on the passage in Matthew chapter 21 that describes that encounter between Jesus and the chief priest and the elders of the people just two days before the crucifixion. Those men came up to Jesus in the temple and asked a question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you authority? You may remember Jesus answered them with a question. A question regarding the baptism of John and where it came from. He said, did it come from heaven or from man? And instantly, by doing that, Jesus exposed not just their insincerity, but their illegitimacy and their unwillingness to humble themselves, to acknowledge their sin and to believe God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus demonstrated the power of the question to direct his audience to see and to understand the truth. Whether that audience was was a committed audience, sometimes a curious audience, and in many cases, uh, critical, a group of critics. In our passage for today in Revelation, we come across a couple of very important questions. Not necessarily questions that are posed by our Lord, but certainly questions that pertain to Him and questions, I pray, will reveal something to you regarding your own heart. Some of you may know that this particular book was penned by the Apostle John in the last decade of the first century. John was the last surviving apostle and an old man at this point, exiled to the barren island of Patmos. The Roman authorities had banished him there because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. While on Patmos, John received a series of visions that laid out the future history of the world. Not only future to him, but as it has turned out, events that are still in our future. 
And John addressed this book to the seven churches of Asia Minor who were already feeling the effects of persecution. To those churches, Revelation provided a message of hope, a message that reminded God's people that though evil often seems pervasive and wicked men all-powerful, their ultimate doom is certain. That God is in sovereign control of all the events of human history and his ultimate victory is equally as certain. Christ will come again to judge and to reign. Unlike the gospel accounts, which primarily unveil Christ at his first coming in humiliation, Revelation reveals him in his exaltation, in blazing glory when he comes a second time, takes back the earth from the usurper Satan and establishes his kingdom on earth. Now, we're actually going to look at portions of chapters 5, 6, and 7, which means we're going to have to move fairly quickly and not get bogged down in uh, too many of the details, but there are two main ideas that I want us to consider this morning. In fact, they are actually two questions, and they are right out of the text itself. The two questions, and these are questions of eternal significance. The first question is this, who is worthy? Who is worthy? The second question is this, who can stand? Who can stand? Well, let's answer this first question, which honestly must be answered in order to answer the other. And to do that, let me attempt to set the stage. Again, in this particular vision, the Apostle John sees a throne in heaven and God the Father sitting on that throne. It's a breathtaking scene with flashes of light and radiant colors and various angelic beings serving God and worshiping him as the one who has always existed and has created all things. We'll pick up here in chapter 5 verse 1. It says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Again, not to get too much in the weeds, but this, in fact, all of chapters four and five are the prelude to a seven-year, I believe, seven-year tribulation period, which will lead to the establishment of Messiah's kingdom on earth. All of that is in the future. Chapters 6 through 19 describe the details of the tribulation period, which culminates in the visible and bodily return of Christ. Chapter 20 describes the millennial kingdom, an actual earthly 
kingdom with Christ sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But this is the prelude to those events. In chapter 4, you have this focus on the heavenly throne and the one who occupies it, the throne of Almighty God. Then in chapter 5, you have a focus on this scroll or book and the one who opens it. And the backdrop, keep in mind, is the reality that we are confronted with every day of our lives, and that is the curse of sin, the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of the world, the groaning of creation, as well as the longing of God's people to see things set right, for justice to be served, for righteousness to prevail. Creation groans, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, because of this bondage of corruption, a corruption that entered when man disobeyed God in the garden, a a corruption that encompasses every form of suffering and every expression of sin. And God's people cry out for deliverance. God, redeem us from this curse. So in one sense, what John sees in this prophecy as a whole, what he sees and experiences is is thrilling, thrilling to his heart and mind, but at first and for a moment it is devastating because for a, a split second there appeared to be no reverse of this curse. For a moment it appeared that there was no one who had the right or the authority to do it. And so you have this incredible scene, a scene where you have an ultimate throne and a dominion that is safeguarded by the one who is on that throne. You have Almighty God holding a book, a book that has writing on both sides and a series of seven seals, and he holds it, John says, in his right hand. That is to say, he he is the one who guards it. He is the one who holds the testimony and the revelation of all that he has ordained to occur throughout redemptive history, all of the judgments upon evil, all that he intends to establish righteousness on earth, everything that involves the setting up of a mediatorial kingdom. All of that is contained in this document or book, and the Father keeps it. And John wants to see it because it's rising up in John just as it rises up in every believer that someone has got to solve this dilemma. Somebody has to deal with all of this evil. Someone must reverse the curse. There has to be an earthly kingdom. Paradise lost must be paradise regained. But then John sees a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? That is the question. Who is worthy? Who has the right? Who has the credentials? 
Who is qualified to get the title deed to the earth? To take back dominion and to reverse the curse? Who is the person that is worthy to reign over and with God's people? And if you think about it, who dare approach the throne? Who dare approach the throne, take the book from the Father's right hand, and then break the seals and reveal the book's contents? Then comes this devastating assessment as this unfolds in verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so the question sounds forth, who is worthy? And the answer is deafening silence. No one, it seems, has the divine right. One commentator writes, quote, what does John see next? Precisely this, nothing happening. The mighty angel had bellowed so loudly that the entire universe could hear, but nothing stirred and no one answered. Behold the absolute impotence of any created being or group of created beings to govern the world or bring to pass God's everlasting kingdom. The challenge has been put. We might say that the gauntlet has been thrown down. Here is the big chance for those who think they are someone to prove themselves. But no one in heaven can help. Not even the angels who are always before the throne of God. No one on earth has power to do anything. No man, no politician, prime minister or president, no world banker or industrialist, no philosopher or leading thinker, no pope or archbishop, no revolutionary hero. And no one under the earth, no fallen angels, no spirits of the departed, not even the prince of darkness himself. This is a verse that puts creation firmly in its place, end quote. No angel, no prophet, no apostle, not Mary, not Moses, not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, not your favorite Bible teacher, not your favorite Bible preacher, not even John the apostle himself, God's chosen instrument to receive this vision. No one. Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is uncontrolled sorrow. John wept bitterly. What if there is no revealer with divine access? What if there is no one worthy enough to take dominion back? No victor with divine authority. That would mean that there is no ultimate end of evil. No answer for evil's horrors, no ultimate destruction of Satan, no final salvation for Israel, no hope for the nations. And for a moment, that is what John is contemplating. It's what he's thinking. Is the victory secure? Will there be an everlasting kingdom? That's what's on his mind. And he is in turmoil over it. Because if no one is found worthy, then evil and suffering continue on. 
and injustice continues. And Satan still deceives. And that everlasting kingdom never comes. Thankfully, there's more to this vision, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop weeping. I mean, this, this isn't just a mild consoling. It's not one of the elders saying to John, don't worry about it. It's all going to just work out in the end. This is, this is an emphatic, stop weeping. There's no need for that, not in light of what you are about to see. Come to the throne and watch. Behold, there is one. There is one whose very presence will end your grief and your sorrow. This elder mentions two Old Testament messianic references to the worthy one. The first is in Genesis 49 in the imagery of the Messiah who, like a lion, will devour all of, all of the enemies of God's people. The second is Isaiah 11, which pointed to the Messiah's royal lineage and kingly right to the throne. That is to say, Jesus has the royal lineage. He is the descendant of David. And notice what else the angel says about him. He has conquered. He has prevailed. He has overcome. Prevailed over exactly what? Well, he's prevailed over sin. He's prevailed over the world and Satan and death. Jesus has conquered. And he's done that not through military prowess, but through sacrifice. It is finished, he said from the cross. He has overcome. And in John's mind, it's the connection between Jesus' overcoming and this seven-sealed book or scroll that makes it all complete. Jesus has all the necessary credentials. He is the worthy one who bears the marks. The lamb, verse 6, standing as it had been slain. He bears the marks of having gone to the cross and shed precious blood. He bears the marks of the one upon whom your sin and your guilt were placed. He bears the marks of the cursed one of Isaiah 53. He is the Lamb of God. Interestingly, while every lamb sacrificed under the old covenant pointed to Christ... He is only referred to as a lamb once in the Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Even in the New Testament, outside of Revelation, he is, he is only called a lamb four times, twice in the Gospel of John, one in the book of Acts, in Acts 8.32, which is actually a reference back to the Isaiah 53, 53 text, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. But in Revelation, he appears as the lamb 31 times. And here in chapter 5, as a lamb standing as if slain. That is to say, he was slaughtered, but he is alive. He has conquered sin and death, but he bears the marks as though freshly, freshly slain. He bears the marks of his sacrifice, and he, he is not only alive, but he is also ready for action. He is, he is the worthy one, notice, sent from heaven with seven horns, which means, I think, that he has kingly power and strength, seven being the number of completion, horns representing, in most cases, kingship. 
He is the one who has the kingly power and strength to overcome all of these other empires. Empires that are raised up during the time of the revived Roman Empire, according to Daniel chapter 7, as well as the final and ultimate Antichrist. Jesus is the one with seven horns and the fullness of kingly power, and he has the fullness of knowledge and truth. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into, the, into all the earth. That is the fullness of his lordship and the fullness of his influence. And for all of these reasons, Jesus' atoning sacrifice, his connection to Judah and David, his unparalleled wisdom, power, and influence, he owns the prize. He is the one who owns the prize. Notice what happens in verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Can you imagine a man doing that? (laughs) Going up to the throne, a human being, taking the book out of the Father's right hand, the hand of authority and protection. But he did because he had the right to do it. If he, if he didn't, then the Ancient of Days would not have released it. You remember Daniel's terminology in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so there's sort of this exchange that takes place. There's a taking and a releasing. This is the Father releasing it to the worthy one as he is taking it. This is not Jesus wrestling it away from the Father. This is the Father giving it away to the only one who is worthy, his beloved Son. What a profound moment. What a hinge moment in this heavenly vision. Because at that moment, everyone knew and understood that this was the worthy one. And they all responded spontaneously in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. What did they do? They worshiped him. Just as they had fallen down and worshiped God the Father in chapter 4. They fall down and they worship the Lamb. Why? Because at this moment in John's vision, all of the authority and power emanating from the throne of chapter 4, all of that authority to judge the earth and to bring about global righteousness is given over to the Son of Man as he takes back the title deed to the earth, which becomes the theme of the first worship song in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He purchased sinners of all kinds, sinners from every ethnic, linguistic and national group, He loves us, Revelation 1 says. He has released us from our sins so that we would no longer live for ourselves. But for God, that is our pardon. 
Then notice our place and privilege by, by releasing us from our sins because of the love which He has, he has loved us. He now, he, he, he now, we now have this, this place, this great place. He has made us to be a kingdom. We have a king. The kingdom is coming to earth and He will reign in righteousness and we will be in that place with Him. And what is our privilege? That we are priests. Priest to the Father who sent the Son. A priest, keep in mind, is one who mediates truth to lost souls. A priest is a person who mediates the character of God to other people. And this is our privilege as believers. We serve the living God. We serve His purposes. We are His hands and feet, His instruments of grace and peace to others. We are set apart for Him in a royal priesthood. The Apostle Peter said that we would offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We are called to that. We are strengthened for that. We are empowered for that. You and I are, an, are anointed for that service, and it's powerful and it's effective. The words of counsel that we share with other brothers and sisters in Christ, helping at times to restore someone who's caught in a trespass, Moments of prayer, lifting up one another, perhaps someone who's suffering with pain or loss, showing hospitality and kindness, even here this morning. Musicians playing for His glory, laying down a sacrifice of resources and time. That is our present duty, to live under His Lordship and to serve His purposes. And in the future, we will reign as King, Priest, on the earth. That is what this song is about. All glory be to Christ. You are worthy to take the book, to take back what is rightfully yours. You laid down your life, you purchased sinners, there is to be a kingdom, and you are the worthy one to reign over them because you bought them. You purchased a kingdom. You have raised up righteous servants who will reign with you. And that has to happen. It has to happen. And John sees it in this vision. And all of this, keep in mind, is preparation for what comes next in the vision and actually allows for what is coming in the vision, which is judgment. Jesus Christ is about to judge all of these judgments will be on his behalf and for his glory, which is exactly what begins to unfold in chapter 6. In verse 1, John sees the lamb open one of the seven seals. He, he breaks the seal and unleashes the first of many judgments upon the earth. And then a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth he can and he does because he is the worthy one who has overcome. He has conquered and prevailed. He has met every qualification. And that is the answer to our first question. Who is worthy? The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. Which takes us to the second question. Who can stand? Notice what happens in Revelation 6 as these future judgments are raining down upon the earth. You have destruction, this massive destruction of war. 
widespread poverty. You have economic distinctions like we've never experienced. Large-scale death as a fourth of mankind is wiped out. And you pick up in verse 12 of chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the next question for us to consider. Who is able to stand before God and the Lamb? Again, all of this will happen in order to demonstrate the impotence, the weakness of man and the power of God. As creation begins to unravel and come apart, you think about the cycle of the sun, you think about even the cycle of a week, or the fact that when you go to the beach, that the ocean stays back. All of these things are meant to give us some sense of security and certainly to prompt us to remember God's faithfulness and power. The fact that the planet is always on its axis, the, re- the seasons come and go, the sun always doing what it's supposed to do, the moon doing the same, the stars staying in their place, the fact that that you can chart your course by those things, the, the mountains always where they are. So the idea in these verses is that everything is being shaken. Mountains are being moved in these sort of massive tectonic shifts. Islands are being overrun by unprecedented tidal surges. The earth and creation unraveling to the extent that the world leaders at that time will be in a terrific panic, longing to hide from God, knowing that this is God's wrath. They must be thinking to themselves, this has to be the end. The sun is not cycling. The moon is not cycling. Rather than light, it's dark. Tidal surges are happening, massive shifts, changing colors. And this is precisely what God wanted. Again, the reason God's doing this is to demonstrate His power. And it's also to strike fear in the hearts of men. To unsettle hearts by unsettling creation. Because we get used to these things, right? We get used to the sun coming up. We get used to the fact that if we were to take off this afternoon, we want to go up to LJ, we want to see some mountains, we expect them to be there when we arrive. We fall into into patterns of complacency. In fact, we depend upon those cycles oftentimes more than we depend upon the one who put them there and sustains them and upholds them. So God's intention here is to unsettle hearts, overturn things that man has taken for granted, and men will know that God is bringing judgment upon the world 
Every rebel on earth is sensing it. All the bold leaders of the free world, and he actually lists them out, imperial, these sort of imperial, imperial rulers, the leaders of global influence that are known throughout the world. Again, these would be some, someone if, uh, world leaders you would, if I, if I mentioned a name, you'd say, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know them personally, but, I, but I, I've heard that name. I know them. Those with high rank that would make and enforce the laws that govern the people of the globe, the ones that run things on a day-to-day basis. The generals, the military leaders who serve the kings of the earth, the rich and the strong, influencers in the global market, not just individuals with a lot of money, but the movers and the shakers when it comes to global economics, and those in a class of influencers who are mighty in the mix of world affairs for various reasons, whether it's their own experience, their intellect, or the sheer force of their personalities. Perhaps there are religious gurus or philosophers, the science gurus, cultural icons, maybe even pop celebrities, those that so often shape the the way that people think. All of these people, all of them, John says, who rule the world at that time, that time of the beginning beginning judgments, start to have such fear that they lose all self-confidence. And all that self-sufficiency and that ability to influence others suddenly turns to terror, reduced to nothing. And notice, John also mentions everyone slave and free. That would include the, the vulnerable and the needy. You might even think of that group as just the everyday person, the dad, the mom, the husband, the wife, the man, the woman, the teenager who's beholden to the leaders and the influencers, who, by the way, have nothing to offer them. At this point, there's nothing to offer. And these, these kind of people, these kind of influencers, they, they like to do this, right? They like to step into those moments of chaos. And they like to give you advice, <laughs> right? How to live your life, how we're going to resolve all these, all, these, all these differences and all of this conflict, claiming that they have the answers with confidence, but in this situation, they, they too are filled with terror and dread. Not just the influencers, but everyone that's under their influences. Every pagan, every Christ rejecter, everyone, no matter how powerful or how weak, will run for the hills because of this collapse of the natural world. No more structure, no more security gained from the predictable cycles of nature. No more love between neighbors because by this point, love will have grown cold. Everything turned upside down. It's frightening, really, to think about. And what do they say? Verse 16, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You notice what's happening here. They're running away from those elements, but at the same time, crying out in panic, get between us and the wrath of God. This is the, their global sentiment. This is the prevailing belief at that time. It is their prevailing attitude. How do they know all of this is related to God and the Lamb? Well, by now, they'll begin to know because evil will be ramping up against God's people. The martyrdoms and the slaughter will be to such a degree that people will have heard the gospel. God's people will be unashamedly testifying that this is the wrath of this is the wrath of God in calling everyone everywhere to repent. There is nowhere to hide. This is the great day. 
That was predicted. The wrath of God is coming. And they recognize that it's not just the wrath of Almighty God, but it's also the wrath of the Lamb. Which again, when you hear that term, Lamb has more to do in our minds sometimes with the first advent of Christ, but they've somehow put it together. The kings and nations of the the earth that this concerns the one who died, who was slain, who rose again and who promised that he would return again and that things would be much different the second time. So even though their whole lives they've been actively suppressing it, on that day when this sixth seal is broken by the Lamb and these chaotic things are happening and filling every heart with terror and dread, it is then that they will say with a very clear And pinpoint accuracy that Jesus Christ is real. And he is the judge and they will not want to face him. And their question in verse 17 is an important one. Who shall be able to stand? Which, by the way, is not the first time this question has come up in Scripture. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, after some of the men of Beth Shemesh had presumptuously, presumptuously looked into the ark of the Lord, God struck the people with a slaughter and in verse 20 says to the men, says the men cried out, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Psalm 76 verse 7 says, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? Nahum chapter 1 verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who is able to stand? That is the question. And based upon the events of Revelation 6, it's clear who will not stand. The wicked will not stand. Which again doesn't surprise us. Psalm 1 verse 4 says the ungodly are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And according to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, those who do not believe the words of Christ and observe them will not stand. On the contrary, the rain and the floods and the winds of judgment will come, and when they do, great will be their downfall and destruction. Even if they claim to be preachers, even if they cast out demons, even if they did wonderful works, if they did not know Christ in a personal way, if they did not acknowledge their sin and look to the Lamb in humble faith, they will remain in their sinful condition condemned before God. And nothing that they do can hide them from His judgment. What about God's people? Will they be able to stand? There's no doubt that they will. And that is one of the things that we learned from Revelation chapter 7. 
that God's elect are able to stand in the judgment. They cannot be lost, and they persevere in faith, which becomes the very proof of the fact that they belong to Christ. They endure to the end, not in their own strength, but in the strength that God supplies, and this endurance will prove the genuineness of their conversion. And I wish we had more time to unpack this, but as we come to chapter 7, there's sort of a transition that takes place. A pause between the judgments that we've already seen in chapter 6 and the breaking of the seventh seal in chapter 8. And so you have these birth pangs, these six seal judgments, one right after the other, and then you have this interlude. You'll notice this in Revelation 7, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so you have this suspension of judgment, four angelic beings holding back the four winds of the earth, and you have this sealing of 144,000 Jews, a seal marked on their foreheads, According to Revelation 14, verse 1, it is the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. They belong to to Him. This is about possession. It's also about protection. Not that they will be preserved from martyrdom. Many will eventually be killed for their faith, but they are sealed because they are being preserved from the immediate experience of the effects of what is coming upon the earth in the trumpet and bold judgments. Somehow, God shields them from all of that. They, they will know that they will have to ride this season, if you will, out but they will also know that they have been marked, sealed, and protected. They won't lose their faith. They won't go back to Judaism. They won't go back to some kind of false peace peace treaty. They won't be deceived by Antichrist. They won't compromise their witness. In fact, they'll find one another, I'm sure. They will be rejoicing in God's goodness and rejoicing in God's electing purpose that he would do such a thing. Such a miraculous work. God says, I'm going to seal 144,000 Jews as my special servants, and they cannot be touched. I'm going to make them stand as long as I want them to stand on the earth or until their time is done. This is Israel's redemption and restoration as a testimony to pagan Gentile nations. Can you imagine that in the midst of all the chaos that is unfolding in the judgments, Israel comes to the place where there are 144,000 regenerate Jews serving as bold witnesses to the unbelieving, unbelieving world, full of people running around crazy with their fears and terrified about what is happening all around them. Israel a remnant of 144,000 of them, untouchables, as they are sealed by God to be His witnesses, set apart for a unique service to God and uniquely tested during the time of the mark of the beast because they are uniquely hated. But they will be able to 
to stand. It will stand firm in that test because of the power of God. And then what we have next in chapter 7 is another amazing work of grace. Again, despite the horrors taking place on the earth, despite the wickedness that will permeate the globe, despite the massive offense that God has endured by these world kingdoms, God is working out His salvation plan in a way that is completely counterintuitive to the way that we think. Displaying His mercy and causing His grace to explode onto the scene in the darkest of hours, in the most troubling of seasons. And we see this beginning in verse 9. That while the 144,000 Jews are witnessing on earth, meanwhile, around the throne, this is happening. Verse 9, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne with, uh, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an expression of God's amazing grace. 144,000 Jews are sealed and become witnesses. And from that witness comes an unprecedented outbreak of Gentile conversions. A revival of Gentile peoples who came into the tribulation, rejecting God, full of themselves, but who come to faith in Christ, many of them through the witness of these 144,000 evangelists, a countless and culturally diverse number of redeemed. Many who die under the global judgments of chapter 6 and others who die for their own witness. And again, John sees them in this vision, a massive Gentile harvest united in their confession that salvation belongs to the Lord, standing before the throne of God, in His presence, without sin, serving Him, blessed with God being their perpetual protector, blessed with the Lamb being their personal shepherd. This is their reward. Or you could say, He is their reward. Just as a side note, this scene says a lot about our oneness in Christ. As you think about this group of redeemed Gentiles, you have to think back back to when they were not saved. And their identity was mainly about their differences. Full of hatred for other nations, pride towards others who were different, thinking less of others, believing And we do this, believing our culture is the best. 
Our language is the most refined. Our way of doing things exceeds all others. But around the throne, none of that. There's none of that. Their driving interest is God's authority, not man's authority. These people have been killed in the first wave of judgments, and they're before the throne. But their focus isn't some kind of petty or some kind of personal agendas. There's no petty differences, no human authority used to trample someone else's life. This is about God's authority and His will. And the law of love lives around the throne of God, doing no harm against one's neighbor. And notice they're also standing before the Lamb, meaning the focus is on Christ's honor and not man's honor. This is, this is the object of highest praise. Again, what a rebuke to our pettiness. If we would only get over our own honor. Also in verse 9, the focus is on sin's elimination and not man's rights. They were clothed in white robes, truly saved and sanctified. That is their only hope. And it is their spiritual triumph in Christ and not earthly bliss that is at the heart of heaven's celebration. Back to our second question. Who is able to stand? Not the wicked. Not those who live for themselves. Not those who take God's good gifts and His patience for granted. But God's people will stand. Every one of those whom God elects and calls and saves, whether Jew or Gentile. Every man, woman, and child that He seals and protects is His people. They stand before Him and with Him because they are His and they stand in His forgiving grace. Rebels against Jesus Christ will not stand. But God's people will stand because of what He does for them. They are able to stand because it's the power of God to make them stand. No matter the challenge and the testing that comes, God's people will stand because it's their faith that He protects. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, that true believers are by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the true Christian stands, not without some wavering, not without weak faith, not without seasons of difficulty and challenge or even sin for which there must be confession and repentance and trust, but a true Christian always follows Christ and will in time gravitate back to the will of the Father he or she stands assured, firm to the end, upheld by the Lord, never utterly cast down. And this seventh chapter in Revelation is a notable demonstration that no matter the severity of the circumstances and no matter the persecution that comes, and what will come, by the way, will be unprecedented, nothing like we've ever, ever seen in history like never before or ever again, but no matter the test and the challenge, God's people will stand. Even if some of them lose their lives, none will lose their faith. Praise God. Listen, there's only one way for the wrath of God to bypass you, and that's if someone 
who is worthy takes that wrath for you. But apart from trusting in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, there is no escape. As believers, we don't have to be afraid of God's wrath. We have peace with God because we have trusted in the Son. But those who have tried to find some other way, they need to be afraid. That great day of wrath is coming. But God's people will always stand because of His grace and power. What an encouragement for us who serve God at a different time, in a different season of redemptive history for a specific purpose. But God has not changed. We are His witnesses. We are commissioned to make disciples of nations. We have the promises, the promise of God's presence because we belong to Him. We need to be bold. We need to be uncompromising knowing that He will never lose us because He has set His love and His seal upon us. May that help us even this week, even today, to be faithful in our witness for Him. Would you stand? Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. We are grateful for our Savior who is worthy who died and who lives, the head of the church, the coming king, the one that sustains all things, our creator. Regardless of what we may know or may not know specifically or definitively about the timing and details of these future events, we are confident that they will happen. We accept whatever your plan is and whatever your timing is, but we do do want to live in the imminent urgency of Christ's return. Father, we want to be a people of faith, so we ask that you would give us grace. Help us to be ready for every test and trial that comes. May we be found with a love that is ever-growing and a faith that endures. Help us to be a faithful church. Strengthen us, protect us, use us, and make us to stand through Jesus Christ and for His glory. Amen.